0: This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. What happens to litigation and to litigants when courthouses are closed? On this episode, I'll speak with two of my fellow trial lawyers about how litigators, our clients, and the courts are keeping things moving while we shelter in place, and about the lasting effect that the lockdown could have on how we resolve civil disputes both in and out of court. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is brought to you by McCarthy Tatro. We're exploring the law and policy of pandemic response and looking at how governments, organizations and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. This episode explores a topic of interest to everyone, not just lawyers. Although it may contain legal information, it does not provide legal advice. Here's episode 13. All rise, if you're wearing pants. I have a fax number. When I appear in court, I write it on the counsel slip next to my name and my email address. When I file a document, like a written argument, it goes on the front cover, and usually on the back cover, too. It's even in my email signature, as if to say, Now that you've read this message in the palm of your hand, feel free to compose a reply on letterhead, and send a slightly blurry copy my way. For lawyers, this kind of thing is extremely on-brand. Technology has never been our profession's strong suit. We have made huge advances in some areas, like electronic discovery and document analytics. My firm has a division called MT3 where there are wizards who do this full-time, and they're extremely good at it. But for the most part... Law offices today look pretty much like they did 20, 30, even 50 years ago. You'd have to switch out the computers for typewriters, and you'd have to change some of the architecture and take the interior design back a couple of decades and obviously make the whole place a lot less diverse. But otherwise, it wouldn't be that difficult to turn most modern law offices into movie sets for films about lawyers in the 1980s or the 1970s or the 1960s. The same is true of courthouses, too. As Justice Rosalie Silberman Abella of the Supreme Court of Canada recently put it in a lecture at Harvard Law School, an excerpt of which was published in the Globe and Mail, quote, We still conduct civil trials almost exactly the same way as we did in 1906. Any good litigator from 1906 could, with a few hours of coaching, feel perfectly at home in today's courtrooms, end quote. She's right. She's right. Still, much as it's important to improve our processes and to modernize our courts, we've mostly kept the essentials because, well, they're essential. Literally centuries of experience tells us so. But perhaps because of our confidence in that experience, in the wisdom of how we've always done things, the legal profession can sometimes struggle with innovation. I made my own practice mostly paperless a year or so ago, and that was monumentally painful. For someone who has been in practice years, even decades longer than I have, and whose law office has the piles of paper to show for it, even that kind of basic, in-your-own-backyard innovation can be difficult to contemplate. To be fair to lawyers, and to judges for that matter, we're also often constrained by rules and resource allocations beyond our control. Let me give you two examples. The first example is service by email. You've probably seen at least one movie or television show where someone gets served with something. Someone is waiting outside their office or walks up to them on the street, hands them a document, and says, you've been served, and then walks away. That isn't usually how it works, you'll be surprised to learn. Most documents in a court case don't have to be served personally. Once a case is underway and the other side has a lawyer, we serve documents on the lawyer, not the client. Here's the thing, though. In Ontario, the rules of civil procedure allow us to serve documents on the other side's lawyer by mail, messenger, courier, fax, but not by email, unless the other side agrees in advance that service by email is okay. And usually we don't even have that discussion. So every day, usually multiple times a day, I get faxes from opposing counsel on my litigation files. I don't actually have my own fax machine, of course. The faxes come to me by email. The second example is court budgets. Judges in Canada, once they're appointed, are constitutionally guaranteed judicial independence. Governments can't tell them what to do. But governments do control the purse strings. Court budgets are set by politicians. And that makes sense. When the state is spending public money, and the judiciary is part of the state, somebody needs to be democratically accountable for that spending. What this arrangement means, though, is that courts generally can only spend money on things like, say, videoconference technology or electronic document management systems if governments agree to pay for them. And there are constant discussions behind closed doors between chief justices and attorneys general about court budgets and funding for modernization projects. This helps to explain why, when Ontario's Auditor General reviewed 2.5 million court filings from the 2018-2019 fiscal year, she found that 96% of them were on paper. So I don't think it will offend anyone if I suggest that when COVID-19 hit and the lockdown began, courts and lawyers in Canada were not exactly primed for a quick transition to working and litigating remotely which makes it quite remarkable what has happened since. There have been plenty of hiccups, of course, and the situation is far from ideal. But in civil litigation, at least, a transition that many of us expected to take years to happen has advanced significantly in a matter of weeks. More documents are being filed electronically. Cases are being heard by video conference. Whole trials are happening over Zoom and other technology. And nobody expects these innovations simply to disappear when the crisis ends. As the Chief Justice of Ontario's Superior Court of Justice put it last month, quote, If there is one positive that's going to come out of this crisis, it's that we have been forced, and the ministry has been forced, to accelerate its plans and to move into electronic hearings and also into electronic filings. We cannot go back. End quote. We can even serve documents by email now, and we don't need consent or a court order either. Importantly, courts and governments across the country have used their powers to pause time limits for starting or taking steps to advance lawsuits because of COVID-19. We'll talk about what that means and about what it will mean in the future later in this episode. It's still far too early to speak of silver linings here. I'll be doing cross-examinations by video conference later this month, but I was supposed to be starting a seven-week trial, which has been adjourned, so who knows when my client will have the opportunity to present their case to a judge. For many lawyers, particularly those who practice in smaller firms or as sole practitioners, and for the staff and paralegals who support them, the disruption of court business has been hugely problematic, and it will remain so for a long while yet. Still, as we start to look beyond the peak of the crisis, lawyers, courts, and clients have begun to think about what post-lockdown litigation will look like, and about how the experience of COVID-19 could shape the way we resolve civil disputes in the future. To help us think through the implications of the pandemic on civil litigation, I spoke with two of my McCarthy-Tatro colleagues, Dorothy Chirac and Andrew Calumet. Dorothy and Andrew are both partners in our firm's litigation group, In Toronto. We spoke on Thursday, April 30th. Dorothy and Andrew, thank you both for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: So let me start with the broad question that's on everybody's mind How's work from home going for each of you? Andrew, let's start with you. Uh,
1: It's going great. I uh, have a nice little home office here with an extra monitor, um, and I am fortunate enough to have a live-in nanny with us that's able to to watch our two little kids so i can i can for the most part have a a relatively undisturbed work day um during the typical north american business hours so so things are going pretty well
0: have you had any conference call snafus kids running into the background during a zoom call or something or has it been generally even keeled
1: well, do you know what? It's uh, a couple of times our three-year-old has escaped and uh, has barged into, into <laughs> my, my office to to make an urgent announcement that he that he found a sticker or he, he drew some, a picture for me or something like that. That's only happened a couple of times, but uh, for the most part, people are pretty understanding of that and they think it's cute. And um, I, I look like I know what I'm doing as a parent, so that's a good thing.
0: Dorothy, how are things going uh, on your end? How's, how's the work from home life treating you?
1: Pretty similar
2: to Andrew. It sounds like I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old who likes to burst in at times while I'm working, but luckily my husband, um, he is a full-time dad, so he is able to look after her for most of the day, but she definitely has burst in at some inopportune times. At one point, I was guest lecturing over a Zoom call to U of T students (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, for a torts class, and she ran in and It was actually quite cute, though. I think they liked it. She came and sat on my lap for a while (laughs) mid-lecture.
0: Well, this is the thing, right? I mean, we're so concerned, at least some of us are, about looking unprofessional or some snafu happening during various professional things that we've been doing remotely. But there's something endearing and humanizing, surely, about if you're making submissions in court and a kid bursts in or you need to take a break in the middle of an examination because the kid is crying in the next room or there's some household catastrophe that needs to be dealt with. I think maybe one thing that we will come out of this thing having all learned is a little bit of tolerance for each other's life uh, circumstances and a little bit of patience, maybe. I don't know if that's been your experience, but it's certainly my hope.
2: It's been really nice seeing um, a glimpse into... Some of our coworkers' lives as
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and looking carefully in the backgrounds of people's video conferencing windows, trying to pick out all the books on their bookshelf and figure out just how impressive they really are, you know. And and I, I saw someone musing on Twitter about getting wallpaper with very impressive books and a bookcase to go behind their video conferencing station. So maybe that's an idea to be adopted the next time you make submissions by video conference. I don't know. Let me move on to that question though about litigation remotely uh, because this is something that all of us are now dealing with and you're both busy in a way that is a very fortunate thing not every lawyer has that that luxury right now and a lot of our colleagues at the bar are struggling to fill their days uh, because the courts aren't operating uh, the way that they usually do and the uh, and the pace of, of things has has changed Andrew let me start with you on the question of of the implications of pausing limitation periods for some matters and not others can you just explain to us what broadly the government has done in terms of pausing limitation periods generally and what the exception it has made uh, for matters under the construction act uh, is and what that means for, for those who are litigants and those who are uh, dealing with matters in the court system.
1: Sure thing, Adam. So it's, it's really a two pronged suspension of time periods that the, uh, this emergency order uh, came out that became effective on March 16th um, this year. So the first one, uh, the first prong of that is to really pause uh, the, the running of limitation periods. So that's pausing uh, the time uh, that a party has to commence a lawsuit or commence a, a cause of action or plead a cause of action against another party. So, once you discover your claim, for the most part in Ontario, you have two years in which to to issue a claim or start a proceeding. So that that two year period is has been paused as of March 16th to some later date that we just don't know yet. Um, so that's that's the first prong. The second prong is. The pausing or suspension of timelines and proceedings or pausing suspension of, of steps that parties need to take under certain statutes and and that that's a pretty broad pause and it had some pretty far reaching effects uh, throughout the province and, and, and one of the effects it has and you mentioned this Adam was on on uh, the construction industry so. Um, within the Construction Act, there's there's timelines that parties have to preserve and perfect liens, and if uh, liens are are uh, on title to a property, that's going to affect the statutory holdback that an owner uh, can release. So what happened was when this when the government first set this order out, it paused that time to preserve and perfect liens, which then had the I think unintentional consequence of really reducing some of the cash flow on the project so um what the government did in in earlier this month was to say okay we're gonna exempt the construction act from this pause of 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 time periods and time limitations Uh, and i think they did that just to get the money flowing on some of these construction projects again so i think it's a it's a good thing and certainly the industry i was appreciative of that
0: Dorothy, what have you seen in terms of of dealing with litigants and dealing with opposing counsel in terms of the impact that the pause of time limits and of limitation periods has had on matters that are in the system or that could be in the system in the litigation sphere? Are we going to see long-term impacts of this pausing of time limits uh, uh, in the coming years, or is this going to be a uh, when things get unpaused, things should return to normal relatively quickly? What are your expectations in that regard?
2: Well, purely from a mathematical perspective, there's definitely going to be some far reaching impact. So as Andrew mentioned, usually on most matters, there's a two year limitation period on matters in which you that's how much time a plaintiff has or a potential plaintiff has to start a claim after an event has occurred that's caused them damage, or after they've discovered that this particular event has occurred, That's caused them damage and they've discovered who it is that they need to sue. And so with this pausing of limitation periods, what's going to happen is there is going to be an addition of time because from the time when the order was enforced on March 16th to whatever time it's released, that period of time essentially doesn't count against them. So let's say that it's three months or four months or even six months, that amount of time will have to be added when defendants are considering whether they might actually have a limitations defense to a claim that started against them. So when usually you would do the math and say, oh, this claim has been started against me, um, but it's been more than two years. And so therefore, I now have a defense where I can say, well, you didn't start this claim in time. You're actually going to have to figure out the math on that and see if that's in fact the case, because it'll actually be two years plus six months or however long the pause was. And so just from a mathematical perspective, it's clearly going to have an impact. But I I also think there's going to be impacts on this concept of discoverability that I've mentioned. And so when you're trying to figure out as a defendant, whether or not a plaintiff ought to have discovered their claim at a particular period in time. So basically this question is, when did the limitation period start running against them? There's an analysis that's done as to whether they did their due diligence and whether they actually took steps that they ought to have taken as a reasonable person in trying to figure out who caused them damage or whether they have a claim. And I think that courts will look at this period of time a little bit differently because we are in this strange situation where everyone is working from home unless they're essential workers and certain businesses are closed. And there may be particular documents that one might expect that this uh, you know, potential litigant should have gotten, but maybe they were unable to for whatever reason. So I think that the analysis on discoverability will also be impacted.
0: So just to use an example to try to illustrate this for, for listeners who might not be familiar with what litigation periods, uh, or excuse me, what limitation uh, periods are and how they operate. Say I slipped and fell on Andrew's driveway on March 16, 2019, so a year before time was paused by order of the provincial government. And if I waited a year and hadn't yet brought a claim against Andrew, under normal circumstances, I would have an additional year before my time ran out, before the limitation period expired. But what you're saying, Dorothy, if I understand you correctly, is that time stops on March 16, 2020, and doesn't resume again until the pause is lifted, such that it's actually going to be more than two years that I will have to bring the claim, because you have to deduct from whatever the ultimate period is in which i bring my claim the time in which limitation periods were suspended in ontario if i got that right
2: yeah that's exactly right
0: so if i'm a litigant and i'm in the uh, and i'm in the the period where i don't yet have a uh, a claim that i've brought against somebody what should i be doing right now as a strategic matter or a tactical matter to ensure that I'm preserving my rights in a litigation sense and ensuring that I'm not prejudiced in any way when when the limitation periods start to run again. And I'm speaking, first of all, from the perspective of a plaintiff. Andrew, let me start with you on this. If, If I'm advising a plaintiff or if we're thinking through what I might do in order to ensure that my rights are protected, are there steps that I should be taking now during this period of limitation periods being suspended? in order to prevent the risk of prejudice to me later on
1: well i, I think the, the first thing that you can do is you can still actually file a claim right so just because the limitation period's suspended doesn't mean that that you as a plaintiff or a litigant need to actually stop what you're doing and and, and not pursue your claim or not pursue your action or, or or have your claim issued so the court uh has an electronic portal where you can actually have a statement of claim issued electronically, so you're still able to, as a litigant, um, pursue your claim even though uh, the period's told. It, it's it's more of a, a a means to protect a potential claim that, you know, for an individual who may not have the ability to go out and retain counsel right now because of physical distancing requirements, or or is unable to to uh, obtain certain documents from from third parties because of the uh, the, the 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 systems in place right now. Or the limitations on the systems in place, um, you know, it's there to protect those individuals. For for other people that are able to commence a claim, you're certainly able to do so, um, and I would certainly recommend that the parties do do that um, because it's the it's the easiest way to make sure that your rights are protected and that your your claim uh, will will survive any potential attack of of a limitations defense.
0: Dorothy, from the defendant's perspective, obviously the limitation period for starting a claim is less relevant unless you are contesting that the plaintiff did in fact start a claim within the limitation period. But all the other time limits that have been paused by government order are obviously going to impact defendants just as much as they do plaintiffs. In matters that were already in the system before the pause happened on March the 16th, what have you seen in terms of the attitude of opposing counsel, the courts, various participants in the civil justice system? towards moving things forward? And what should parties, particularly defendants, bear in mind in terms of ensuring that their own rights are protected despite the slowdown or the pause that's been imposed on litigation timelines generally?
2: What we've seen mostly is that a, a lot of defendants, unless they're in a situation where there's a, a real costs problem for them in that, you know, at the moment they are going to have significant issues incurring legal fees and actually taking these steps because they're dealing with so many other things as a practical matter, in which case, um, you know, the practicalities of the situation we're in do have to obviously uh, be on our minds. And and so in a situation like that, you may not take steps, but otherwise, it's, it's generally our advice and we think it makes sense to continue to get done what you can right now because, it's not in anyone's interest to let matters drag out. And unfortunately, in the court system right now, there are certain things that we're unable to do. Um, So when it comes to, for example, having a pretrial, not all courts are doing them, even virtually or over the phone. Some of them are just not doing them at all. Some of them are only doing them in circumstances where there's a high probability that the case will settle, and both counsel agree to that. And so. There are certain things you can't do, but when it comes to dealing with these limitation periods imposed by statute, and so for example, any of the rules where it says you have to file a defense within a certain period of time, and obviously many times there are agreements and an understanding between counsel that we don't stick strictly to the rules, but you really should be filing defenses in any event getting submissions in if you had a particular deadline that you were you were trying to meet, just because it's not in anyone's interest to let things drag out. And so to the extent that you are able and you can continue to fund doing these things, we think it's advisable to do that.
0: Now, you mentioned that not everything is being done remotely or by telephone, by video and other ways at the moment, both in the courts and outside of the courts. But there are some things that are happening remotely by teleconference or video conference. And Dorothy, I understand that you've actually been involved in a number of examinations that have happened by video conference. What's that been like?
2: Yeah, we did a full set of discoveries on a case, and I have another set of discoveries coming up. And it's been pretty amazing how much you can do virtually, and you really can still get A sense of the witness that you're asking questions to, for example, over video. And the one concern is that if not everyone has great internet, then sometimes there can be some technological barriers. But barring that, and you know, most people do luckily have have good internet, we're able to do so much uh, online. And I actually think that in all of this, it's a silver lining Mm -hmm. that people who maybe weren't so technologically savvy before this are by necessity now becoming so. And I think that it'll help us be more efficient and save costs in the future. For example, when we have examinations that we need to do of witnesses that are out of town, there won't be a need to travel if we can just set it up by video and make it happen that way. So I think that there are some silver linings to this when it comes to the the court system and and what we're able to do and I'm hoping that the courts also become more technologically savvy so that we can get things ramped up and and do more hearings and things like that virtually which I understand is actually happening in some context.
0: At the risk of offending some of our our listeners as well as a number of our colleagues the three of us are all millennials, so I think it comes, I would suggest that it comes us slightly more naturally to the three of us to do things by teleconference or video conference, because we're familiar with the technology involved, or at least more familiar, and it's more intuitive to us to, to handle some of these things. Andrew, have you seen any pushback, particularly from, and again, I know I'm going to offend people by, by going this way, but particularly from older council. Uh, or older clients or, or those in more remote areas who might not have access to the same uh, uh, bandwidth of internet access in terms of uh, pushback to doing some of these things remotely? Where, where have the breaks been, in other words, uh, to doing things the way that Dorothy is suggesting we might actually continue to do them in the future? I, I think
1: you hit the nail on the head. I, some of it, I think is is, is generational. Um, and, and and this idea of, you know, litigation requires, you know, having, you know, being face to face with the, um, you know, the adverse party and, and and looking him or her square in the eyes uh, in person. And um, I, I think a lot of that is is starting to go away. And, and certainly there was more reluctance to engage in, in remote or electronic processes in the first couple of weeks that this was going on. We're now. Um, you know, far more along into this into this you know remote world that we're dealing with, and I'm, I'm starting to see some of that reluctance fade away, and I think that's a good thing. And the more people are are faced with having to do do things electronically or remotely, and the and the easier the the processes become. I mean, for most of these programs now, most of the software, all it takes is really for the end user to click a link and everything is you know, automatically put up on their screen for them and just have to look into the, the camera on their laptop or on their computer, it's, 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 um, it's, it's quite user-friendly. So I, I think it's really breaking down a lot of barriers and it's really accelerating some
0: people's uh, uptake of technology, uh, which may be one of the silver linings about this whole whole thing. I think we've seen the courts in particular have made incredibly quick strides and judges because they typically are appointed to the bench after long careers as lawyers are older than the three of us are uh, because they have experience and they have the knowledge necessary in order to do that job. And so you'd think that that might be a pinch point. But actually, from what I can tell, the judiciary has been way ahead of a lot of the private bar in adopting this new technology. The Chief Justice of the Superior Court has said that there's no going back from a lot of the things that we are now doing remotely. Dorothy, just how profound do you expect this change is going to be in terms of the day-to-day experience of litigating cases, at least in Ontario, if not across the country?
2: I think that in many ways, our systems were quite far behind. So I'm hoping that with Judges getting more comfortable with technology and the courts, you know, ensuring that they're able to operate this way. I think that we could be a lot more efficient, and I think and for one example of that is, um, and you know, speaking of of limitation periods and the ability to still keep them if you as a litigant want to, uh, there's a lot more that can be filed now electronically, and the courts have have done that, and I think that's a huge benefit because. There's really no need, in many ways, to be filing uh, things like claims and defenses in person, and so being able to do that electronically is is a huge benefit. I think it's a big time saver, and it saves paper too. So it's great on many levels.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, Andrew. If let, I want to go back to the the limitations on moving things forward. Not limitations in the limitation period sense, but just restrictions on what can be moved forward, what can be done because obviously there are some significant implications for matters that can't be heard remotely or that aren't being heard the way that they were supposed to be heard. Trials and, and various other things in light of the, of the COVID-19 situation. What are the options? If I am in a situation, a dispute that's been long simmering, it was supposed to go to trial or a trial was a year away and now it's who knows how far in the future and I wanna get things settled what are my options in terms of getting things resolved quickly or expeditiously that are alternatives to waiting for the court system to to accommodate me given that they're dealing with a broader range of urgent and non-urgent matters that are being heard right now in a more restricted sense?
1: Well, that's that's a good question and there, there are really a, a couple options. Um, you know, one is is to take the the settlement approach. Uh, you mentioned that you actually use the word the word settlement, and, and and what came to mind is if the parties are think that settlement is an option, one thing that they may consider doing is doing a remote mediation, for example. Um, that would be available to parties, and certainly there are mediators out there who are still offering their services uh, on a remote uh, remote way. And 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 the parties, if they agree to do that, and think you know this is something that we can resolve with the with a little bit of a, assistance from a a skilled mediator, that's, that's one approach. If the parties are entrenched, dug in, they don't think that mediation's is uh, uh, likely going to result in, a, in a, uh, the resolution of the case, then the other option is to take the dispute outside of the, the formal court system and try arbitration, uh, private arbitration. So That's certainly the, uh, something that can be done if both parties agree to it. They don't need to have a pre-existing arbitration agreement there's, uh, you know an arbitration agreement is something that the parties can can reach uh, uh, reach or come to an agreement to at any point in a dispute uh, even if there is no dispute um, really at any point so the parties have options outside of the court system be it through mediation arbitration um, you know what we typically refer to as alternate dispute resolution um, and that's it's a it's a good option now considering that a lot of the arbitrators are used to dealing with issues on an electronic or a remote basis or an, uh, an expedient basis. Um, so arbitration is really something that's geared towards, um, you know, dealing with these types of circumstances.
0: And I guess, I guess the question that arises out of that is if that becomes an option that more litigants pursue now because they don't want to wait uh, for courts to be back up at full capacity uh, after the shutdown, do you think that'll have a broader or longer term impact on how we do litigation in the future? Is Are we going to see more cases end up in mediation or more cases end up in arbitration as a consequence of this experience? Or do we think that once you can get your day in court again, and and I should say you can get your day in court now on urgent matters and a, and a range of non-urgent matters, but once, once it becomes, uh, we're back to whatever normal looks like in terms of getting into the courtroom, do we think that litigants and their lawyers will will go back to the old way of thinking that court is the way you want disputes resolved? Or do we think there will be more things that get decided through alternative dispute resolution like arbitration or mediation?
1: I, I think that the trend, even before COVID, was shifting towards more alternative dispute resolution, uh, shifting towards arbitration and private arbitration. Um there are a lot of benefits uh, associated with arbitration that you just don't get in the court system it's it's quicker. it's typically less expensive. it can be confidential. The parties get to shape the process in which the the dispute is is heard and how it's decided. um so there's all these benefits that you don't necessarily get in the court process. and so that being said, the parties have to pay an arbitrator to 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 hear the dispute, but you know, we're seeing it a lot in the, in the commercial arbitration context, and we're seeing it more and more. I suspect that, you know, once parties get uh, a better sense as to what arbitration has to offer, that we're just going to see even more and more parties pick it up as opposed to going through the typical court process.
0: Dorothy, is that your sense as well? Your practice is similar to Andrew's, but it's it's slightly different. Do you, do you have the same sense that the, the trend towards ADR, which had been in train for a long time, may accelerate as we come out of the situation that we're now in?
2: I certainly think so. And I think in some ways it's related to the comments that we've already made about working virtually and having not done that before, because I think that people who, you know, both lawyers and litigants who haven't had the opportunity to have a mediation um that's gone successfully and that's been good and everybody's worked hard before it or an arbitration that they've experienced and and they felt good about, you know, if they haven't had those experiences before and this forces them to decide to do that instead, then I think for the most part, they'll realize it's a good way to deal with certain disputes. And so definitely there'll be a, an even bigger trend towards doing it more because experience is so much of, of how people, Um, judge what they want to do in the future on Future Matters.
0: Dorothy, Andrew, thank you both very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Dorothy Chirac and Andrew Calumet are partners in McCarthy Tatro's litigation group in Toronto. This has been Episode 13 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca or by fax at 416-868-0673. Pour plus de contenu de McCarthy tétro ne manquez pas notre balado, Le droit au temps de la COVID-19, animé par ma collègue Christelle Chevalier. This episode was produced by Samantha Chown, Catherine Cleon, Chloe Thomas, and Pippa Leslie. Our researchers are Laura Alford, Brittany Serqua, Yonita Kukio, Pippa Leslie, Solomon McKenzie, and Chris Pushkash. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramerts, Miriam Veya, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tetro. Not literally here, of course but you know what I mean. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 recovery hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening and please wash your hands.